All right. Uh, how's that for an entrance? You like that? I did not want to do the steps in front of all of you guys, so we're going in the back door today. Uh, what a perfect song. What air my God ordains is right. Right? I, uh, yes, I hurt myself. Yes, I know, I'm old. Uh, I can't currently stand and put any weight on my right leg, so if I just fall over, somebody just come up, help me, and we'll just keep going. Uh, kids, you are dismissed at this time here through the front. Kids, three to six, you are dismissed at this time. Yeah, I ran yesterday, and I hurt myself, and whatever. I finished, I finished pretty well in a large and fast field, so... I'm feeling all right about it, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm in pain. So pray that this will all go smoothly. John chapter 6 is where we're going to be. <clears throat> Let's focus on the Word. Verses 22 through 29, John chapter 6, page 891 in the Pew Bible. Bible from the Greek word biblion, which just means book. Please take out the book and open it up. I've noted before that it is surely of some significance that God has given us a book. The all-wise, all-good God of the universe chose to reveal himself and communicate to us through a book. That is reason enough right there why you should be reading books. But you know that I love books. I find great joy and rest and satisfaction in books. And I continue to be blessed richly by both the life and death of our dear sister Lydia, in part as she left me a great inheritance of books. It was wonderful. I just, I left her house with boxes of books. I'm in the middle right now of two Lydia legacy books, and I quoted from one of the books she left me a few weeks ago on Bible study. Now, this has been a very helpful quote for me, and it's kind of been messing with me at the same time. Now, this is from the doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. <clears throat> Here's what he says. He says, the more I try to live this Christian life, and the more that I read the New Testament, the more convinced that I am that the trouble with most of us is that we have never truly realized what it is to be a Christian. If we understood what the Christian really is and the position in which he is placed, if only we realized the privilege and the possibilities of that position, and above everything, the glorious destiny of everyone, who is truly a Christian, then our entire outlook would be completely changed. I I think he's completely correct. I know that's true for me. Maybe that's true for you as well. Maybe many of our troubles result from our never truly realizing what it really means to be a Christian. And building upon and improving upon what Lloyd-Jones says there, which is not at all an arrogant move to make, but, but this is correct, I would argue that our not truly realizing what a Christian is, is rooted first in our not really realizing who Christ is. And so this text is here to help us better understand who Christ is so that we can then better understand who and what a Christian really is. We simply do not understand Christ as we should. And we simply do not understand what it means to be a Christian as we should. And I'm speaking first about myself. And there are many reasons for this, but I believe that part of the problem has been a failure of the church at large to preach Christ correctly. I struggle with this. I know preaching is hard. I am constantly reading a preaching book. I'm still figuring this out. Communicating clearly is difficult. Communicating Christ clearly is extra difficult. But I've realized that it's much easier to preach about Christ. It's much easier to preach about what we get from Christ, from the more, you know, the flagrantly horrible health and wealth Jesus will give you money, he'll give you a new house, he'll give you a new home, uh, to even the more subtle but equally dangerous, hey, Jesus will solve all your problems, Jesus will make your life easy and comfortable, Jesus will make you feel better about yourself. All of this dangerously misses the mark. Biblically, our goal and aim, we repeat this a lot, we preach Christ crucified. And so the focus of our preaching is first on him, not on you, not on me. The Christian life is Christ. And what we get and gain is Christ himself. And we only get and gain Christ, as we saw in Sunday school this morning, by grace through faith. And so part of the problem has also been a failure of the church at large to correctly preach how we get and gain Christ. We've emphasized making a decision, praying the sinner's prayer, inviting Jesus into your heart, still never understood what that means, walking the aisle, responding to an invitation. None of these 
are the way in which Scripture speaks about getting and gaining Christ. And even when we've gotten the answer correct, in name at least, faith, believe, we've often gotten what that is wrong. We've often implied that that means little more than, hey, believe, agree with these truths about Jesus, uh, agree with these truths about Jesus, repeat this prayer after me, and you're saved. But what if that's not faith at all? What if biblical faith is something else entirely? Because here's the key verse of our text this morning. Verse 29, this is the work of God. That sounds like something pretty important, something we should strive to get right. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And I believe that it is easy to get believe wrong. So we're going to work to get believe right this morning. Uh, Peter opened up the service last week perfectly. What do you hunger and thirst for? What is it that you truly crave and long for? What do, you, what do you look forward to? What do you live for? What do you seek? Believing that it will sustain and satisfy you. And we need to all be honestly, honestly answering that question for ourselves. Is that thing Christ? Because this is what faith is. Faith is laying hold of Christ. Faith is pursuing Christ, coming to Christ, seeking Christ, hungering and thirsting for Christ, eating and drinking Christ, the language he's going to use later in our text, loving and longing for Christ. This is what it means to believe in Christ. Do you believe? This is what Christ is calling all of us to this morning. This is why this word is here. This is what you're looking for, whether you know it or not. This is where you will find life and satisfaction and rest and peace. And so pay attention as we look at Christ. Please pray for me as I seek to preach Christ in all of his beauty and glory and goodness and grace. Right? I want you to desire and delight in Jesus Christ. All right, so as we, we're going to seek to do that together this morning as we walk through three main points, hopefully coming out of our text. Our text is going to use the language of seeking Jesus. Right? So we're going to borrow that language. Point number one, we're going to see that when you seek self, you actually end up finding death. So we're going to see how that comes from our text and what Jesus is confronting this crowd about. Seek self, find death. But, good news, number two, seek Christ, find life. Okay, great, that sounds good. How do we do that? Well, you seek Christ through faith or belief. And we need to define biblically what that really is. So that's the goal. Seek self, find death. Seek Christ, find life. Seek Christ through faith. Let's read the text. Pay attention, this is the most important part. Of the sermon. This is God's word. This is literally God speaking to you. So pay attention. John 6, 22 through 29. This is what God wants to say to you today. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Let's stop there and let's begin our time with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you so much already for Sunday schools and your word um, taught well down here and upstairs. And we thank you for worship and the gift of song and prayer and the reading of your word. Father, you've been very good to us already. And we ask now that you would continue to bless us and speak to us uh, through your word. I pray that you would help me. I pray that you would sustain me uh, physically, but more importantly, spiritually. Father, help me to communicate to Christ clearly. Father, help me to stick to your text and bring what is in your text out of it. Father, I pray that you would take these truths by your spirit, apply them to our hearts and, and draw us to Jesus. Uh, show us how good he is. 
Father, you draw our hearts to him. Make us more like him. Father, teach us what it really means to believe in him. And I pray that we could find that life in him even this morning. Father, help us work through your word. We ask and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, point number one, seek, self, find, death. Let's start briefly with some context in verses 22 through 24. Those opening verses set the stage for what's to come. We have seen two significant signs in the first part of chapter 6. First, Jesus has just miraculously fed the 5,000 with bread. Remember, this whole story revolves around bread. Bread as sign. Bread as symbol. A month ago, we started this long chapter and we highlighted the great repetition that explains the main point of the chapter. Starting in verse 27, Jesus is going to use the word life again and again and again. This longest chapter in the whole of the New Testament is often called the bread of life discourse. A discourse is just a teaching or a long talk. The big idea is in verse 35. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate. I am the bread of life. Hey, let me be clear. Verse 41, I am the bread of life. Are you listening? Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Just in case, verse 51, I am the living bread. And so this text is not complicated. There's no question about what this text is about. Bread is life, especially back then. There, were no, there was no carb consciousness back then, right? There was no Atkins diet or keto diet. Bread was the staple, especially for the poor. It was often all that they had. By the way, if you're reading in the King James, it says in verse 27, labor not for the meat which perishes. This is one of the reasons why modern translations can be helpful. The meanings of words change. Meat there doesn't mean meat as we would use it today. The flesh of animals, like the only thing that Peter wants to eat. No, 400 years ago, meat meant more generally food. He's not talking specifically about meat. He's talking about food. He's talking about bread. Because for the poor, for these crowds, their food was bread. And so for them, bread was life. So Jesus has supernaturally fed the crowd with bread, but his purpose in doing so was never just for the satisfaction of their stomachs, but to point them to their need for the satisfaction of their souls. And Jesus is claiming that he is that satisfaction. I am the bread of life. I am giving you this bread as physical sustenance to show you that I am your spiritual sustenance. But the crowd, remember, has missed this entirely. Back in verse 15, they wanted to seize Jesus. They wanted to make him king. He can miraculously make food. We've got 5,000 men here, right? That's an army. Let's overthrow the Romans. Let's put this guy in charge. He'll feed us and he'll lead us. And Jesus wants nothing to do with their materialistically minded political plans. And so Jesus withdraws from the crowds. And then to remove the disciples from this chaos and and this misunderstanding of the Messiah, he puts them in a boat. He sends them back across the Sea of Galilee. That's what we saw last time. And then Jesus comes to them in the midst of the storm. He walks on the water. And in so doing, he's revealing himself as God, but not just as God, but as God who is present with them, who comes to them, who is present with them in the midst of the storm. And so, in verse 22, the crowd that was over on the east side of the sea notices that Jesus is gone, but that he had not left with the disciples in their one boat. Well, there's no, hang, no point hanging around in the middle of nowhere if Jesus isn't there. So the crowd loads up in boats. They head back to the west side of the sea toward Capernaum to try and find Jesus. And again, note the verb in verse 24. They were seeking Jesus. And so the question is... Were they really seeking Jesus? Verse 25. They find him. They ask him, Rabbi, when did you come here? There was only one boat. Uh, we know you didn't come in that boat. So uh, what's, what's going on here? Verse 26. Note that Jesus does not answer their question. I would really want to tell the people, hey, yeah, you know, I just strolled over here across the water. Right? Pretty cool, right? No, he doesn't care to do that. He does not waste his time. He does not often behave the way that we think that Jesus should behave. We need to understand that if Jesus were here today, we would be all kinds of offended by Jesus. Jesus is not sappy and sentimental. 
He does not seem to be too concerned with people, uh, with their feelings and being too sensitive. He does not tiptoe around. He does not qualify everything. He doesn't make sure that he doesn't step on any toes or hurt any feelings. They just ask him a question. Well, they go, you know, just, just answer the question. He doesn't answer the question because he knows what's truly behind the question. And so instead of just answering the question, what does he do? He, he actually rebukes them. Verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you. Again, remember, that means this is important. Pay attention. This is true, true. You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So yes, they are seeking Jesus, but Jesus knows why they are seeking Jesus. And the why is the evidence that what they are seeking is not really Jesus at all. There there is a seeking of Jesus that is not actually a seeking of Jesus. Jesus says, you're not seeking me, you're seeking food. Look back at verse 14 and compare it to verse 26. Here in verse 26, Jesus says, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. Back in verse 14, we read, well, when the people saw the sign. Again, so Jesus knows that they saw the sign superficially. They witnessed the miracle, but they entirely missed what the sign signified. They saw, but they didn't really see. And so his point to them is that they've entirely missed the point. And it's tragically ironic that many continue to miss the point today. So often this chapter, this, this, uh, this paragraph, this sign is preached little differently than, look, Jesus is so nice, he feeds the poor, we must feed the poor like Jesus. And again, not even commenting on the validity of that claim one way or, or another, that's simply not what this text is about. Jesus is telling the crowd, you thought this was about food. And he says the same thing to many preachers and Christians today. You thought this was about food. It's not. In fact, catch it, he's rebuking them for making this about food. You think that you're seeking me, you're not seeking me. And only seeking me because you got food from me, you are ultimately seeking not me, but what you can get from me. And seeking what you can get from me, what you are ultimately seeking is yourself. But again, what... What's so wrong with that? That's what the whole world is telling us to do right now. That's, that's what they're all telling us where we'll find life and satisfaction. You'll find it within. Seek yourself. Treat yourself. Follow your heart. Do whatever you desire. Right? You find fulfillment as you actualize and, and bring out to the, the innermost desires of your heart. But look at verse 27. Just the first half of the verse. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes. And stop there. And here's a command from our Lord. Here is law. And law from a gracious Lord is always good. Always given for good. He says, do not do this. Do not do what? What's he saying? Well, he's saying, do not be chiefly and ultimately concerned with the material. Do not be chiefly and ultimately concerned with not just food, but with anything temporary. Anything that pertains to this earthly temporary life. Now, we know Jesus is not telling us not to seek those things at all. Food is good. We have to have food to live so we can rightly seek it. And we can rightly enjoy it. God could have just given us some sort of magic, tasteless vitamin pill, and here's how we get our sustenance. He could have done that. He didn't do that. He gave us amazing varieties and textures and tastes. Food is wonderful, and it's good, and it's meant to be enjoyed. Some of you are already thinking about what food you're going to seek Right now, uh, when we're done. Right? So food is good. Jesus is not saying don't seek food, don't eat, don't enjoy it. And work is good. Right? Work is the main way that the food that we have to have to live is provided. So work, food, good, all these things are good. The things of earth can be good in their proper place and order. But Jesus here is fixing our focus first on ultimate things. Jesus is seeking to direct us to what is true food to what can ultimately satisfy and sustain he has just miraculously fed them the night before and they're already hungry again they're always going to be hungry he's trying to point them to the thing that will perfectly eternally ultimately satisfy them so in part what jesus is doing here is emphasizing the priority of spiritual blessing over material blessing Because Jesus knows how prone we are to flip the script and seek first the latter. 
He knows that we tend to be little better than the crowds. And he loves us. And so he graciously commands us here. Consider again what it is that Jesus is really saying in this command. How foolish must we be to need this command, if you really think about it. He says, do not work for or look for or live for or pursue that which perishes. It's kind of silly, but sin makes us stupid. So Jesus has to tell us, don't pursue that which is dead or death. Don't pursue that which is ultimately perishing. And it kind of sounds insane when you put it that way. Like, why would we intentionally pursue that which devastates us and destroys us, that which could lead to our death? Who intentionally pursues death? Well, all of us, as it turns out. The point is, Jesus is saying, hey, do not pursue perishing. Do not pursue first that which ultimately perishes. And you know this. You, you have a soul. You know there's more. Than to, more to this life than just the physical, just the material. You know that your love for your spouse or for your children or your family is more than just these chemical firings in your brain. No, you, you have a soul. Martin Lloyd-Jones again. The ultimate secret of every godly Christian. Whoa, <laughs> that's pretty important. The ultimate secret of every godly Christian is that he has come at last to realize that the most precious, priceless thing in his life is his soul. The soul within me goes on for all eternity. God breathed in the man so that he became a living soul. That is what stamps men and women as being made in the image of God. My soul is the most precious thing of all. That is what I want to safeguard and protect above all else. You have a soul that will go on into eternity. Do you live as if that was actually the case? If that is the case, how foolish then would it be to give it to that which is perishing? To give it to that which is only temporary? It doesn't make any sense. Don't give the eternal to that which is temporary. Uh, we'll be heading down to North Carolina for Christmas vacation in a couple of weeks. And hopefully, at some point, we'll dump the girls on my folks for a night or two. And we will escape to a hotel. That's our favorite thing to do. And we just eat, and we will sleep, and we will rest. And it will be wonderful. I love hotels, but hotels are not homes. Hotels are temporary. Homes are permanent. Therefore, we treat hotels differently, and we stay in hotels differently than we do our own homes. Right? When we get to the hotel, Melissa doesn't look around, sit down, and then write out a honey-do list. Right? First off, she doesn't do that because she knows that I wouldn't do it. Um, right? Melissa's dad is here with us today. It's a bit emasculating to have him around sometimes because he's Mr. Renaissance, fix it, build anything, fix everything, do anything guy. I cannot do any of those things. Right? I am worthless with a tool in my hand. Give me a book or a computer keyboard. Or I had written some running shoes in here, but apparently that one's now off the table. I can't even, let's cross that out. Can't even do that one. Give me a book or a computer keyboard, I'm your man. But tools, nothing. Okay, so Melissa doesn't have honey-do lists. She has daddy-do lists, and she just saves up everything for him to fix when he's here. Thank you, Papa. The point is, we wouldn't create such a list for our, for our hotel room and then ask her dad to head to Home Depot and then come to get to work fixing up the room. No, it's a hotel. It's temporary. It's not our home. It's fun. We can enjoy it while we're there. We can use it appropriately, but it would be foolish and a waste of time and money to live in that hotel as if it was our permanent home. And yet, that's precisely how most of us live in this world. This is not our home. And so many of us do the very thing that Jesus forbids here. We labor first and ultimately for the food that perishes. We live and look for that which is temporary, that which only ultimately perishes. How silly would it be to pour all our time and money and attention into a hotel room that we're going to leave the next day? Well, how foolish when we do the same thing in a world that isn't ours and a world that is opposed to our Lord and a world that is ultimately perishing. And so we should always be considering and always asking ourselves, hey, what is my first priority? What does my life reveal as if I'm pursuing as my first priority? Priority. What is revealed 
by how you use your time, by what consumes your thoughts, what consumes your money, what consumes your heart. And what, what is it that really thrills you and delights you? And what are you really living for, pursuing, and seeking? Is it that which perishes? Parents, do you realize that the great need of your children is not for them to be successful and wealthy? It is not for them to get into the best schools. It is not for them to be well socialized or cool. It is not for them to live a comfortable American dream of a life. The great need of your children is the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. The forgiveness of the sins that deserve eternal damnation. Parents, do you parent your children in light of that reality? What are your parenting priorities? And what are you parenting your children toward? What are you disciplining your children toward? And do you know that every time your child, this is on my brain, we're, we're, we're really wrestling with tests right now. The, the twos and the threes, they go through one period where they're really going to try to exert their will and see what they can get away with. Right? So I'm in the middle of that right now uh, with tests. Do you know that every time your child pitches a fit to get what they want, what they want is food that perishes. What they're desiring and pitching a fit for is that which ultimately perishes. And when we let them pitch that fit and then give them what they want, we are ultimately giving them the food that perishes. And then encouraging them to persist in doing whatever they want to get what they want. Don't help your children pursue perishing. They're good enough at that on their own. We are good enough uh, at that on our own. We need to help them. Save them, correct them, discipline them, lovingly teach them that sin has consequences, painful consequences. Help them make the, con- the connection between sin, pursuing perishing, and pain. And then pray that God would use that discipline to save your children. Pray that God would save my children. That is the only thing that I care about. Yeah, that's it. I don't care where they go to school. I don't care how so- you're homeschooling your kid. Are they, they going to be socialized? I don't care. I don't care. That's a dumb question. Uh, do they know Jesus? That's all that I care about. For Mark 8.36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his own soul? And yet how many of us are living as if, if, if we could just gain this little part of the world? Well, Jesus said you can get the whole thing. It doesn't matter at all if you forfeit your whole soul. The whole world is not worth your own soul. Your own soul is of infinite value. Are you living accordingly? Listen to the Lord. Do not work for the food that perishes. Because in so doing, you are ultimately only seeking self. And in seeking self, you are not seeking the Lord. And in not seeking the Lord, you find only death. But, good news. It does not leave us there. Point number two. Seek Christ. Find life. Now let's get to the second half of verse 27. Look back to verse 27. It's not just don't do this. It's not just negative, but positive. Do work for the food that endures to eternal life. So we won't stay here as long today because this is going to be the main idea next week and the week after that. We've already seen in verse 35 the big idea of the whole discourse. I am the bread of life. And as I mentioned earlier, a few weeks ago, I ran through the repetition in these verses. It starts here in verse 27. 27, 33, 35, 40, 47, 48, 50, 51, 53, 54, 57, 58, 63, 68. Life, 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 life. Every, uh, every verse, multiple times, all of those verses. Life. This whole thing is about life. Everlasting life. Enduring life. You have a soul that goes on into eternity. Will it be an eternity of life or an eternity of death? There is no more important question. And so in lovingly rebuking them, in commanding them not to labor for that which is only ultimately death, Jesus also lovingly commands them to labor for that which is eternally life. It's very kind what Jesus says here. And it is my job, and honestly, it keeps me up at night sometimes, to try and figure out how to convince you and compel you to believe that this is actually true. And then to live like it. That all those things that you are doing, all those places you are seeking satisfaction and meaning and life in work, success, money, relationships, fitness, social media, whatever it is, they will always let you down. They will never satisfy you or sustain you because you were created for something else and something much bigger and something much better. You were created for Christ himself. You were created to be sustained by God 
himself, the one who is life itself. And thus, pursuing anything else that is not him, pursuing anything that is outside of him, is ultimately only pursuing death. And how foolish, right, that we are so prone to labor for that which is death. Jesus is trying to help us. He's trying to save us. He is showing us that which alone can satisfy us, and it's him. Jesus is saying, seek any, don't seek anything else. Seek me. Don't live for anything else. Live for me. It's Matthew 6, verse 19. Here's our first point. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Our current point is verse 20, Matthew 6, verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. This is logical. It's common sense. You would never store your money in a place where you knew it would be stolen. Except all the made-up stuff happened and you got in trouble for it. You're like, hey, hey, Bernie, you want my money? Like, could you take this and do something with it? No, he's a thief, right? You would never give your money to someone that you know is a thief. Yet that is what we are, all of us, doing in our sin and our seeking of self and our investing first and ultimately in this world. And so Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. Okay, what are you seeking first? Honestly, whose kingdom are you pursuing? Honestly, what are you working for? And now Jesus here is not using work in the kind of the works faith contrast that Paul is so famous for. Jesus simply means, what are you devoting your time, your attention, your energy, your money? What are you devoting yourself or your life to? Is it that which perishes, or is it that which endures? Is it self, or is it Christ? And those are the only two options. Again, if it's anything other than Christ, whatever that thing you're pursuing, you're doing it to seek yourself. But, if you're still concerned about the work for language, look at the rest of verse 27. Don't miss what he goes on to say. Back to verse 27. Work for the food that endures to eternal life, don't miss this part, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Yes, work for it, labor for it, strive for it. We should not be afraid of that language. We probably need to hear a little bit more of that language these days. As A.W. Pink says, the word labor signifies that men should be in deadly earnest over spiritual things. Are you in deadly earnest over spiritual things? That they should spare no pains to obtain that which their souls imperatively need. And why would we not? We can be deadly earnest over all kinds of foolish things. Why not be deadly earnest over the most important thing? So you should labor for it. You should seek it with all that you are and all that you have, but you do so knowing that this most important thing, eternal life, is that which Christ gives. And this word give, this gifting is a word that John is going to use 11 times in the rest of this chapter, starting here in this verse. And we'll give it more attention next week. But look down at verse 32. Let's see it real quick. What does he do? Look at verse 32. How is this most important thing, eternal life, given? Into verse 32. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. All right, well, what does this given bread do? Verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Well, okay, how does this bread, how does this given bread give life? Well, look at the end of verse 51. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see, this is the gift. This is the grace. This is life, eternal life, and it is found only in Christ. And it is given only as Christ gives himself to death. So this is the very heart of the gospel. This is why we annoyingly and and repetitively preach Christ crucified. Because this is everything. This is the foundation upon which everything else depends. Because this is the only place that you find what you are looking for and all the other things that you are pursuing. This is what it means that Christ is life. That he is the bread of life. We are death. The wages of sin is death. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In our seeking of self, we have rejected God. Remember, the God who is life. And so in rejecting the God who is life, we have actually been accepting and pursuing death. We have all of us pursued perishing. But look at how God pursues 
us. Look at how gracious and good he is. We know that life is found in relationships. We know that meaning is really found in finding someone who loves us and who knows us, who is gracious to us, and who seeks our good. So look at what God himself has done. Look at how much he loves us, even though he knows us, knows us in all of our sin, knows that we have pursued self and death over him and life, and yet he gives. He sends his son, the one in whom, on whom he has set his seal, the one who is God himself, life itself, come to take on our sin and die. The author of life submitting to death. That's the most amazing thing that has ever happened. The author of life submitting to death so that we who are death can live. That's why there's nothing more important than seeking Christ and nothing more reasonable and logical because everything else is death. Don't seek death. And there's nothing more blessed and beneficial than seeking Christ because he is life and he is good and he is kind. And so he's telling us, seek me and find life. And that's what he's going to go on to unpack for the rest of this long discourse. Seek me, find life. But how do we do that? Point number three, last one. We seek Christ through faith. Back to the text. Look at verse 28. Jesus has kindly called out the crowd. He has told them what they were ultimately seeking. He has told them what not to do and what to do. Look at their response. What must we do to be doing the works of God? This is the whole point of life. Believing and living. Nobody wants to die. Here's the solution. Remember, the only ultimate solution to death is life. And that life is found only in Christ. And that Christ is gained only through faith. Believe. And yet, as I said at the beginning, we, we so often get belief wrong. And you know what? I'm going to annoy you for a second. Here, 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 just, just bear with me. There's something sneaky in the Greek that can actually really help us. I wish we had more time here. I wish people gave this more attention. But look at the text. It's always translated in this way. I've made the case before how important prepositions are. Remember, sometimes the smallest words are the biggest words. Look at verse 29. There's only one preposition in verse 29. What is it? What's the preposition in verse 29? Come on, grammar. What? No, we need to have some grammar lessons. What? In. In is the only preposition. It says, believe in him. That's the one preposition in the verse. And we generally end up understanding that in as little more than that, right? We teach faith as little more than, hey, believe that, believe these things, assent to the truths of these facts. But that's not faith. And the actual preposition helps us to see that. Because guess what the preposition actually is in the Greek? It's not in. E-N in the Greek is in, E-N. This is not that word. We've talked a lot lately about union with Christ. We've just gotten to that in Romans chapter 6, the first use of it. Christians are those who are in Christ. We are intimately, mysteriously, but really united to him. And that preposition is the Greek word in, E-N. We are in Christos. But this is not that word. And in is never the word that the New Testament uses following the verb believe. In the Greek, it never says believe in. It never says pistuo en. It always says pistuo ice. E-I-S. Not in, but ice. And ice doesn't exactly mean in as much as it means into or toward or upon. And so you King Jamers will notice that the King James goes with on. That's better than in. Uh, one Greek dictionary explains this word as denoting entrance into or motion into which implying uh, penetration or connection. And this is so much more helpful. This helps us so much better understand what faith really is. It's not just belief in or about Jesus. It's belief into or toward Jesus. Faith is motion into. It is entrance into and this construction, believe into, pistuo ice, is found nowhere else in classical Greek. It seems that this is a new and novel construction of the New Testament. 
Again, expressing this more intimate idea. This idea of movement, of trust, going out to, laying hold of, resting upon, going into. And if that's the case, this means that faith is so much bigger and better. So much more comprehensive and consuming than we think. Biblical faith or belief involves both credence and commitment. We are Credo Baptist. That just means I believe. Credo is belief. We have creeds. Those are beliefs. So credence is belief and commitment is trust. So faith is believe that and trust in. So faith is confident trust. It is believing trust or trustful belief. And this faith affects the whole of life. And if this faith does not affect the whole of life, then it may not be faith. Because faith is the thing that connects us to Christ. Faith, the gracious gift of God, is how we get and gain Christ. As we are so intimately united to him by the work of the Spirit, uh, Paul Paul says, Galatians, right? He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We are one with Christ. This is faith. This this faith is whole-souled trust resulting in wholesale change, resulting in power and direction for the whole of life. Faith is so much more than believing some things about Jesus. Here's how the 1689 defines it. The grace of faith, right? So it's a grace. It's a gift. It's something God does in, in us, provides for us. The grace of faith by which the elect are enabled to believe so that their souls are saved is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. Faith is ordinarily produced by the ministry of the Word. Skipping to paragraph 2. By this faith, Christians believe to be true everything revealed in the Word. I think it's an important word as people increasingly today say, well, you know, not really that part and and not really that part, not that part, but, you know, just the, the important parts. No, believing everything revealed in God's word. Skipping ahead, catch this. The principal act of saving faith focuses directly on Christ. Accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. This is what faith does. This is what faith is. The principal act of faith, saving faith focuses directly on Christ as it accepts, receives, and rests upon him. That's faith. As we'll see, as we move further into John 6, Jesus is really going to offend and confuse some people. Um, He's going to talk about receiving him in or or taking him in. He's going to talk about eating and drinking his flesh and his blood. That's how intimate this this, this faith thing is. It is intimately appropriating Christ, taking him in to our inmost self. Again, we're, we're familiar with this metaphor, right? We devour books. I know right now you're really drinking in this sermon, right? We, we chew on things. We eat our words or kind of whatever, right? It's this, it's this taking in. Faith is the whole-souled receiving in of the whole of Christ. And it's not just the beginning of the Christian life. It's the whole of the Christian life. We walk by faith. We live by faith. This is why I've entitled the sermon... Uh, believing and living. Yes, we live uh, because by grace we have believed. That's the whole point of John. But that is not the whole of faith. Faith is not a one and done sort of thing. Believing is also living in the sense that it's, it's the whole of the Christian life. This is the how of the Christian life. Because faith is the thing that connects us to the Christ that is life. And thus faith is the means through which we maintain that connection, uh, through which we abide in him, through which we grow in our love of and experience of him. Faith is so much more than just the beginning. It's the whole thing. And if A.W. Pink is correct when he says unbelief is the cause of all of our struggles and failures, then there's nothing more important than understanding what faith really is and then growing in that For this is how we seek Christ. This is how we get and gain Christ. And in so doing, get and gain life. Do you have it? Do you believe? Have you believed not that? Have you believed into? I'm not asking if you believe some stuff about Jesus. Uh, I'm asking do you love and delight and trust Jesus? I wanted to walk through Thomas Watson's five signs of true faith here. We don't have time for it. But his first mark of true faith is that it is a Christ-prizing grace. That's how you recognize 
true faith. It is a Christ-prizing grace. Do you prize Christ? Or do you see him as the most valuable thing that you possess? Is there any sense of, of desire and delight and satisfaction in him? Have you, by the grace of God, seen and been captured by his goodness and glory? It's simply not faith if its principal focus is not Christ. Faith does not seek what it can get from Christ. It seeks Christ. And then it gets the wonderful benefits, the justification, the sanctification, the adoption, the glorification, all as it gains Christ. This is is why the prosperity gospel is so deadly and dangerous. It's just directing you specifically away from the Christ to his life. It's like you can get some money and you can have a comfortable life now, but at the same time, it's not directing you to the Jesus who is life everlasting. Is your focus getting him or what you can get from him? Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. David, Psalm 42, As the deer pants, for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you. And the deer dies without water. We die without Christ. Faith seeks and is satisfied in him and him alone. Again, I know for many of us, this is hard. We struggle with this. Oh, yes, I believe. But where's the life? Why are things often so difficult? Why am I often so miserable? Yeah, I struggle with this too. My faith often falls very short of this. My faith is often very weak. But always remember, again, it is not our faith that saves, but it's the object of our faith that saves. And as Watson goes on to say, a weak faith can lay hold of a strong Christ. It is Christ that saves. You know, we're walking across Queens Boulevard, the boulevard of death, right? Tessa's hope is not in her ability to hold on to my hand. I have a death grip on her hand. Her hope is in my ability to hold her fast. She is weak. I am, at least relative to her, stronger um, than her. Weak faith can lay hold of a strong Christ. It is Christ that saves. The gift of faith, even when weak, still connects us to a strong and saving Christ. But if you're struggling with this right now, well, what do you, you know? What do you do? How do you proceed? Well, I believe. I honestly believe that it starts with a better understanding of how little we understand biblical belief. And so what do we do? What we do, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Man, how can our inner self be renewed day by day, even though our outer self is wasting away? Right? I've been wrestling with that today. Right? It's wasting away. How can we say that our afflictions are light and momentary? Verse 18 is the only way. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. That's what Jesus is telling us to do in this passage. Don't look for the bread. Look for me. Hebrews 12. How can we run this often difficult and exhausting and painful race? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I think the problem for many of us is that we actually haven't really tried the Christian thing out. We haven't really given it the time and the attention and the labor that it demands and that it deserves. The Christian life is largely an ongoing and increasing exploration and experience of ever more fully what we have been fully given and completely given in Christ. It's there. You have it. It's learning, as we saw in the language this morning, to appropriate it. That's what we've seen in Romans 6. This is true. Your old self was crucified with Christ. You are no longer enslaved to sin. Whatever that sin is right now that you think has dominion over you, if you are in Christ, it does not have dominion over you. You have been set free from sin, Paul says. Uh, So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So start living as if this was actually true, because it is. Ephesians 1.3 tells us that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And so our task as Christians, the bulk of the Christian life, is discovering what we have already been given. It's to actually accept and actualize what, um, what we have and who we are by grace through faith in Christ. You are in him. He is in you. So believe. And then seek him with all that you are and all that you have. Whatever you most give your time and attention to. I know some of you are very disciplined with various things. We are all disciplined in certain areas. Some of you are super disciplined 
you know, with social media. You can give all the time and attention uh, to that. Some of you are super disciplined in your, your fitness and, and your exercise. Some of you are super disciplined with your work and being the best that you possibly can or saving or invest. We, we all have these areas that we're disciplined in that we have found and said, this is valuable, this is important, so I'm going to give myself to it entirely. Give yourself in that same way to Christ. Give him the time and the attention, labor and, and work. We don't get faster unless we try and run and practice. You don't get better at your job if you don't study and learn and do. Seek him and labor to seek him. We labor long and hard for what we love and value and for what is most important. Church, there's nothing more important than this. There's nothing more important than Christ. So labor to know him. Look to him by looking into his word. You can't do it without the word. You can't. And the cursory one chapter, maybe four times a week, just isn't going to do it. And so look long and linger and study and pray and meditate. Give your whole self to Christ and you will find your whole life in him. And again, not just for then, but for now. The, the eternal life, the amazing thing is it's, it's breaking in. The quality of that life is breaking in now. As by the grace of God, we can find that, that rest and that peace and that joy. It's all there for the taking, and it's all in him. And so seek him, Jesus says. Labor for that which endures to eternal life. That's me. Seek me. Trust me. Find me. And seek him through faith. Let's close with a word of prayer and ask him to, to help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, help us. We ask that you would do your work in our hearts and in our minds and do it by your spirit and uh, do it through your word. Father, be showing us the things that we tend to look to and seek and pursue, thinking that in them we will find life and satisfaction and joy. Father, teach us that nothing, no other thing, can provide us uh, with life and satisfaction and joy. Convince us that those things can only be found in Jesus Christ. And then we ask that by your grace that you would compel us to live our lives accordingly. Compel us to live as if he was the most valuable thing, the pearl of great price, so that we would then sell all and give up all to gain him and to live for him and to know and to love him. Father, I fall so woefully short of this ideal. Father, I want my entire life and the life of my family and the life of my church to be increasingly aligned with your word and with your will. Father, convince us that there's nothing more important than Christ. Convincing us that he's real and that he's an actual person and that we can know him and be known by him and that we can find life and rest and joy and peace in him. And Father, help us. We know that we can't do this on our own. We know that it's only by grace. We know that it's only through faith. And even that faith is a gift of your grace. But we pray along with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that because of that grace, we would work harder than any of them to lay hold of Christ and to know him and to love him. And in so doing, Father, I pray that we could find great joy and great rest and peace in Jesus. Father, direct us to him. Show us Christ. We thank you for this time, and we pray all this in his name. Amen.